now for something completely different. Welcome to the Cult of the Clock Tower. I am Andrew Nathanson. Every other week, a special guest and I, although for this episode, mostly just I, talk about something. You see, we run out of characters in Trouble Brewing. So, we're going to do a couple filler episodes here. Maybe just one, maybe two. I don't know. We'll be moving on to another edition at some point. But today, I just wanted to talk about some of the things my guests and I missed in the previous episodes we recorded. So, as we've been going through the episodes, I've been keeping track of things that people have told me that they would have preferred to hear more about or strategies people have suggested. And I also asked all my previous guests if they had something to say about a different character that they didn't talk about initially, but like they heard the episode and something wasn't mentioned. Now, most of them weren't paying as much attention as I was because, you know, obviously I was re-listening to the show and editing it and stuff. So most of them didn't have too much to add. I did take a couple of their ideas, though, and I also invited one of them back on to join me here to speak about what he wanted to talk about because he had the most ideas, and that is Justin from the Poisoner episode. So we already recorded that. Uh, we're going to cut to that right now. He's the only one who's going to be my guest this episode. The rest of this is just going to be me talking to you about some things that I think are interesting. And yeah, hopefully hopefully that's a good thing to listen to. It's going to be a little bit all over the place this episode. I don't have a super solid plan. I've just got a bunch of random notes that I've been taking as I've been doing all the other episodes. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. And yeah, let's go to Justin. Hey, Justin, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I was up really late last night, so pardon <laughs> to the listeners if my brain is a little scattered while I'm trying to remember on the fly what I wrote to you. All right, well, let, let, let's let's get right into it. Um, what was What's the first thing? You had like two things, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. so the first thing was on the Raven Keeper, and I also want to say I, like the other guests, did not immediately have anything come to mind because I wasn't studiously listening to the podcast, <laughs> taking notes of when I was angry. No, I wasn't actually <laughs> angry, but uh, I just so happened to be re-listening to a few episodes after playing some games, and so uh, the Raven Keeper on that episode... You guys were discussing what kinds of characters you liked to bluff as in order to try and attract the demon kills, mm-hmm. and um, you you know you sort of said the the most easy ones or sort of the ones that the demon are are the ones that the demon will want to kill. So, empath, undertaker, fortune teller, monk. But you just you sort of said. The, the challenge with the monk is how do you get it out there, you know, and, and let people know that you're being the monk without it being obvious that you're just saying you're the monk. So mm-hmm. I, I agree. The monk is really hard to bluff. Uh, but you guys mentioned that you thought that the empath was probably also bad because of the fact that an empath gets very discreet information and the only reason it should be wrong is if you are drunk or poisoned and the evil team knows where all of the evil players are so right. they should know immediately if you just give a wrong number and that may just lead them to keeping you alive you sort of discussed also on the fortune teller that the problem still exists right where if you you can always explain away a yes on a fortune teller as a red yeah. herring but you if you say a no, a no and you, you gotta yeah. know on the demon <laughs> yeah exactly um, or, you know, or if you get a no and then somebody comes out and says, oh, well, I'm the recluse and yeah, that, you know, you're also, also <laughs> yeah, it's awkward. Um, and so my thought on the empath is that 
the empath is actually one of the easier ones to bluff without directly saying anything. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, because the, the behavior of the empath is usually fairly consistent, which is that they want to talk to their neighbors and they want to execute their neighbors because they want to increase their sphere of influence. And you can do both of those things without actually saying what your information is but usually a demon is going to be looking out for you know who's who's pushing especially you know this would be after a couple days of execution so it'd be for a a more like late game get yourself killed by Mm -hmm. the demon but a demon that is trying to pay attention to these things might actually notice that you've killed several of your neighbors like one right after another or that you're pushing for it at least and so they can sort of pick up on a bluff via behavior rather than a bluff of actual information. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's a thing you can actually do a lot of the time. It's it's all it's a bit harder to talk about because it's all more subtle things. Like you can even be at something like when you're discussing who to nominate, you can just like pick one of your neighbors and say, "Well, there's a reason for it, but I don't want to say what it is yet." And that lets other people have to try to figure out what your information is, and the evil team obviously knows that it's not because you're lying, uh, or well, at least it's not because you're evil. So if they have to figure out what reason you might have to want someone executed, that that is the sort of thing that could lead them to concluding you're the empath. So I feel like that is actually that really is something that you can push for, and really just like make a lot of statements where the only reason you would have to say that is if you're the empath. And then you can definitely do that in a way without giving direct information that they can contradict. Yeah, and I think some of this we sort of talked a little bit about uh, is there's also a definitely somewhat of a divide between online and offline games. It's a lot easier when you're playing in person to be clearly... Maybe I shouldn't say that, but it's a very different vibe when you're obviously whispering to your neighbors, but it's a lot more obvious who's whispering to who I feel like in person, even though online you can just go have a private chat and people can just clearly see that you are having that. I also find that in the online games, there's a lot more lengthy private chats than there are in a regular game. If you have to physically stay inside the circle. Yeah. And it's, it's also, there's no like, there's no physical connection between it. Like you don't see the people get up from right next to each other or like lean into each other. Yeah, exactly. It's just and two I... names and you have to remember that they're next to each other. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen it also on the official streams uh, over the weekends that a lot of the time somebody will say, you know, well, you're talking to your neighbors, but why are you talking to me? And they go, I am your neighbor. And they go, Oh, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. So, um, in some ways the online games make it a little bit easier to see who's talking to each other, but, at the same time, it obfuscates in a lot of ways why they might be talking to each other. And since it's more common, it's harder. But especially for in-person games, it's kind of obvious if you see somebody like leaning sideways and covering their mouth with their paper to like their two neighbors that they're talking to their <laughs> yeah. two neighbors. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think that was mostly what I wanted to say about that. Uh, you can sort of do the same type of bluffing with other characters you know sometimes for example not for the raven keeper but if you wanted to bluff that you were the washerwoman or the librarian you know you just go pick two random people at the start of the game that are somewhere randomly in the circle and 
you know, it looks like you're that. That's something you might do if you're yeah, actually one, an empath. <laughs> I, I've tried doing that before, um, but it almost never works because everyone knows that that's not actually how I play as those characters most of the time. Uh-huh. Uh, like, I'll usually go to, to like, a ton of different people and then eventually talk to the two people I want to talk to as those characters. Well, maybe you should start playing those characters again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> playing it that way, yeah. Yeah, just start playing them the more obvious way now that no one expects me to do that. <laughs> the double meta, yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the other thing, you can do sort of a similar thing if you're the Ravenkeeper bluffing as a fortune teller. You could start talking to random pairs of people mm-hmm. multiple rounds in a row, but... Again, it, that might tip your hand a little bit. The executing your neighbors is sort of both more obvious and more subtle, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's more obvious in, in what you're actually doing, but it's also more like what the real empath would be doing, so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Most of the so, time, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that was. I think that was really the only thing I wanted to add on the Raven Keeper. I wanted to... I read and re-listened to the episode because I finally played the Raven Keeper, <laughs> um, so... It made me. <laughs> All right. And then you had one more, I think. Uh, yeah, for the imp. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So you guys had a, a really good episode on the imp, and you talked about how the imp's priorities often shift from the early game, where you're trying to eliminate every strong information character, to in the late game, you're instead focusing on trying to frame somebody, often one of those strong information characters if you haven't gotten them yet. And I definitely agree with that. I think that's a very good way of putting it where you might get late enough in the game and it's like, well, I could kill them, but they're only going to get one more piece of information. So it makes them a lot more suspicious to keep them alive because people start saying, well, how did the fortune teller out themselves and come all the way to the last day? Mm -hmm. Um, But the point I wanted to add on to that, which is sort of a small thing, is how you can also frame people in relation to the information characters so i'm trying i'm having a hard time saying this i guess in a cohesive sentence but much like how a storyteller can tell a drunk empath true information if it makes them come to the wrong conclusion (laughs) uh you can play that up if you know who a character is so if you have an empath and you execute one of their neighbors or they, or they get a one and then you execute one of their neighbors and then you kill their other neighbor instead of the empath. It makes the other the neighbor the other neighbor look like they were uh, the demon who star passed, huh? Right, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of ways that you can try and make fake star passes, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Um, and it's always really difficult to do when you're the... Oh, and sorry, and this also goes sort of the opposite direction where if you are actually in danger it's there's a question of whether you want to star pass or whether you want to frame the other person (laughs) as a star pass and that's really hard to do in the moment because you know that the information's still pointing to you but um it can be very powerful to frame other people and just keep staying in danger because people (laughs) know that the imp can get out of danger and so the longer you sort of stay in public eye danger and sort of make it look like other people are the ones that are doing what you, quote, would want to do, um, can be a powerful tool in that sort of framing narrative where, you know, you can always make that argument if, you know, well, I would have just star passed early, you know, I mean, the, that yeah. can go back and forth. 
right? Where yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a couple other examples, but yeah, I think I think it's easiest to think of it for empath. Most of these things are. There's a lot of things that revolve around the empath because the empath has the most predictable information. Right. Their ability functions in such a clear manner and doesn't have any built-in misinformation. And again, like you pointed out, the evil team always knows exactly what information the empath will get, barring yeah. a um, barring them being drunk or a uh, recluse, right? Yeah. Well, you put another example in what you sent me, which is that after you execute a good player, um, but maybe that good player, well, obviously they were executed, so probably they had some suspicion on them. If you can kill the Undertaker, who, I mean, you have to know who the Undertaker is, of course, um, but if you kill the Undertaker after executing a questionable good player, as you said it, um, makes that good player look like they were evil. Because killing, like, maybe you've left the Undertaker alive for a few rounds, and now right, and, and like, you've killed other people who were, it was like, oh, okay, they said that they were the butler, we killed them just to confirm that. And then the Undertaker confirmed that. It's like, okay, the Undertaker seems to be getting correct information and stuff. And then as soon as you kill that slightly questionable player, you can really frame that questionable player by killing the Undertaker there. And that's definitely a strong thing to do. Although, it's not as strong because also just killing the Undertaker is the thing that they might expect you to do anyway. Well, but they expect you to kill the Undertaker. Yeah, that I think you really nailed on the key consideration there, which is that if you've left the Undertaker alive for a while... Yeah. Um, especially if you left them alive, but they hadn't come out publicly, so it's not obvious that you're just keeping them alive. Um, this this sort of can dovetail a little bit into spy strategy, where you, much like the empath, where the evil team knows exactly what information the empath will get, if you have a spy, you also know exactly what information the Undertaker will get. Yeah. And so while the Undertaker is a dangerous character depending on who's getting executed, you can leave them alive for a couple rounds to potentially obfuscate the fact that there is a spy. Because um, Undertaker is usually the first casualty in a spy game. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can do what we're talking about here where, you know, well, maybe they execute the librarian or the chef first. And that's helpful to know that they are who they are. But, you know, you might let a couple of those slide and then kill them when it looks like you've executed what other people are thinking might be a minion yeah just, that's right i forgot that i'd uh, mentioned that but i i think that that's a really interesting decision to have as the the demon to know like when to give people information or sort of uh a negative information and yeah. lead their conclusions to a different a different place yeah yeah i'm trying to think if there's any others of these um there are things you can do like I don't know if I don't even I don't remember if we mentioned it or not but um if if you happen to know that the investigator is drunk because they've seen two people who are not minions then you can kill one of those people to make it look like the other one's a minion because like why would the demon kill the minion although just having a drunk investigator in general might already be enough of a distraction in that in that regard uh, <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's another one um yeah I I think I do think a drunk investigator causes enough havoc on their own probably um to make it because because both of the people that aren't minions are going to be arguing so hard that they're not minions because they actually yeah. aren't um that it's already going to make them either look evil or make the investigator look evil yeah i can't think of any other big examples offhand it's more just a, a mentality and i find that specifically with the framing framing other people even if they aren't information characters um carries over into a lot of minion strategy for 
other editions because a lot mm-hmm. of the minions in other editions have the ability to either kill or force players to do certain things and thinking of those in terms of how it shapes the narrative as opposed to or in addition to how it denies information is a big part of playing minions in other editions which is probably what made me sort of think yeah. of that yeah yeah I, th- I think that i think that denying information is a good first step but if you don't have your own false information to back it up then it's not that useful so just thinking in general about how you can use your ability to create another false narrative is very important which is kind of what you're doing here Um, yeah exactly it's it's yeah denying information is good but perverting the information to say something or indicate something else is even better because yeah, exactly. it, it makes everybody want to do something that is wrong as opposed to just not knowing what to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that's it though. As I, uh, you know, I say it wasn't a lot, but it's been <laughs> 15 minutes already. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being on again, Justin. And uh, I guess I'll, do the rest of the episode from here (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh great to be back as always so um yeah thanks for thanks for chatting all right talk to you later and we're back all right so for the rest of this episode i'm going to try to go from as wide a scope uh, to as narrow a scope as i can so There are some things that I feel like have been kind of undertones in a bunch of episodes, but haven't been explicitly said about general strategy as far as bluffing or just playing a character, a good character, or even being the storyteller. So I've got kind of three of those things. One thing for general strategy that I think is very important no matter who you are is to try to think from the perspective of each player as though they were two things. One is the demon, because anybody could be the demon. And I guess to a lesser extent... um, Similarly, you could think of them also as whatever minion you suspect they might be, if you think they are a particular minion. And also think from the perspective of them as whatever they're claiming. Specifically, you want to be thinking about, if I were them, and I know the things that I think they know, what would I do with that ability? So this is kind of an obvious thing, but this helps you gauge your expectations. For instance, you might be thinking like, okay, if I were that fortune teller over there, who would I be checking tonight? Uh, Given the information they've already given us, what am I thinking about? What am I trying to figure out? If they haven't told you anything like that specifically, at least. And when you're at night and you're thinking of it, you, you want to be thinking, uh, you don't just want to be like daydreaming at night. You want to be actually actively thinking about the game. That's your time to just process all of the information. You have nothing else to do at night other than your own ability, which you should obviously think about as much as it, war- at a, as much as it is warranted. But in general, you want to be spending all of your downtime trying to process the information as much as possible. So if you're thinking from the perspective of that fortune teller and you think, Who would they choose tonight if I were them, knowing what they know? And you can assume that they know a little bit more than you, because obviously they've been playing the game as themselves, and they're trying to figure out various pieces of information to guide their actions. But what that'll allow you to do is, tomorrow, you can talk to them. And if they use the ability the way you expected, well then great, that's them just playing it like a very accurate version of themselves. So either they're a very good bluffer, or they just are the fortune teller. If they did something different you're going to be able to explain to them why you think they did. They would have done it one way. And if they don't have a good rebuttal for that, if they don't have a good reason for doing it another way, then that can make you more suspicious of them. This is obviously not 
a foolproof thing. It's just a very general strategy. Like it's obvious. Obviously, they could maybe they didn't think very hard about how they're using their ability themselves, and they just kind of picked randomly. But it is at least one vector where you can use that time at night that you have processing to try to predict the future and compare how the game actually plays out versus your prediction. And if it doesn't play out the way you predicted, try to figure out the reasons for that, uh, and that'll give you a good direction to go as far as figuring things out. Another thing you can do is if you think of every player as the demon. You want to think as, okay, if, they, if this player was the demon, who would they want to kill tonight? And try to predict their kill. Sometimes, and this happens possibly more than you might expect, it, you might in, un, end up in a situation where no matter whose perspective you think from, you would want to kill the same player. And this is just a thing you can do. You can just go down the line and be like, okay, if, I, if this person was the demon, they're still alive, they, they're in this position, who would they kill? Oh, it's Bob. Okay, cool. Who would this next person kill? Oh, it's also Bob. And if you think that you would reach the decision to kill Bob from every other person's perspective, and then Bob doesn't die, then that's a good sign that Bob might be evil. Because why else would they be surviving? Now, obviously everyone has different strategies, so you have to keep that in mind. You, it helps to know the other players in your group and how they like to play the game. But that is another thing you can do, is if you would always land on killing the same player, well then, there's a good chance that that player is evil, because... That would be a good reason not to kill them as the demon. Obviously, that's a very general strategy, but I just think it's very useful to think at night from other players' perspectives and think about how they would use their night abilities. And yeah, especially if you don't have a night ability yourself, because then you're just sitting there all night not doing anything. So I think it's useful. It's obviously a very general strategy. Speaking of general strategies, a general thing you can do while bluffing. Uh, I think... Maybe John mentioned this to me uh, and gave me this idea, and we spoke about it a little bit in one of the recent episodes, I don't remember which, but there's a really strong thing you can do when you're bluffing, which is get other players to tell you what to do with your ability, or the ability that they think you have. This is very, very strong, because in order to get to the point where others are instructing you on how to use your ability, they have to have already made the mental leap to accept that you are the character you're claiming. And once you get them to that point, and once you get them to make a plan with you where they tell you what to do, not you telling them what to do, where they tell you what to do, um, and this is obviously only if you're bluffing an active character, but if you get to the point where somebody else tells you what to do with your ability, it's going to be a lot harder for them to walk that back in their head because they've already made that jump to say, okay, you are this thing, and you are using your ability in this way because I told you to. So I think that's just a really strong thing you should always be trying to do if you have an active ability that you can bluff. And even if it's not an active ability, what if it's if it's something like, hey, who do you think I should talk to today? And then they like get on your side and they're like, okay, well, let's think. You know all these things. You trust me. You, who else do you trust here? Okay, cool. Go talk to this person. I trust them. You trust them. Let's Let's make an alliance with them. That's less strong than somebody telling you like, oh, you should check these two people as the fortune teller. But that's still a good way to get somebody on your side and kind of Without even realizing it, they will be already assuming that you are good and on their side. So that's a general thing if you're a good player, just trying to figure things out. That's a general thing if you're bluffing and you're evil, presumably. You don't really need to do that if you're good and bluffing, because then you're bluffing for very different reasons. You don't care that much if everybody completely believes you. And here's a general thing to do as a storyteller. This is also something we've touched on in episodes before, but I think a really good thing to do as the storyteller is to completely support bluffs. So for instance, if somebody doesn't really understand the game, and they're bluffing that they're, um, well, in my notes here, it says seamstress. That's a bad example, because we haven't talked about that character yet. Let's say somebody is bluffing that they're the fortune teller, and 
after the first night, they say, oh, I didn't wake up last night and choose anyone because they don't understand how the fortune teller works. In that situation, act like they're a real fortune teller who didn't wake up at night and be like, oh, geez, I'm sorry, and put everyone back to sleep. It sets a precedent that allows you to fix real mistakes. Um, So not only is it good for the player because they aren't just going to get completely stuck, it sets up a precedent because you're going to make real mistakes and sometimes forget to wake someone up. And this sets a precedent that even if they're bluffing, you're still going to do that. So it makes it so that in the future, you won't ever confirm anybody um, by like changing the game state to help them out. Now, if everybody starts bluffing things that make you need to put everyone back to sleep all the time, uh, and they're doing it on purpose to delay the game or whatever, then you know obviously don't. But uh, I think that in general, you want to go all in on supporting bluffs to the extent that when you need to actually make game changes in the future it won't like immediately tip everyone off that you are 100% doing this because you made a mistake and you're like confirming somebody. You can do the same thing with like the butler as a common one, one in Trouble Brewing where if the butler is like, if somebody realizes they didn't vote as the butler and they ask you, hey, what would you do if, or what can I do? You you know, I'm the butler. They're bluffing, of course. If they say, hey, I'm the butler. I'd, I accidentally voted without my master's vote. Um, then you just have to tell them what you would tell a real butler, which is, you know, I can't do anything to confirm or deny who you are, so um, the game's just going to have to stand like that. But yeah, that would be my biggest piece of advice for storytelling that'll just really help smooth out your games to set that precedent. Um, Because if you ever set the precedent of only changing the game state to support people who are clearly not bluffing, then it will make it very hard when you do make those mistakes to ever fix anything. How about a general thing from the perspective of somebody who really wants to die at night? This is kind of a nuanced thing, but this came up in a game that I played on the Pandemonium Institute stream recently. Um, By the way, uh, you should go watch those. They're all fun, and I'm occasionally on them on Pandemonium Institute's Twitch channel. Anyway, if you want to die at night, fake double claim with people who you believe are bluffing. So there's a common thing where somebody will come out early on and be like, hey, I'm the empath and I learned this about my neighbors. And everyone just assumes they're bluffing because, like, why would the empath really come out on day one and just say that? Uh, Like, once your group gets to a certain point, that sort of thing becomes a little bit more suspicious. As a result, though, it opens up an opportunity for you. So the, the exact situation where this happened is that in the game I was playing in, John, who, I don't know, for some reason, I guess he's like the ghost guest of this episode because I keep mentioning him. Uh, But... John Jengsit was, I think he was the investigator, and he claimed the empath day one, and everyone basically just didn't trust him, and I knew based on the information that he gave, because I was evil that game, I knew based on the information that he gave that he was bluffing, but pretty much everyone thought he was bluffing, but he held on to that bluff for a little while, because nobody else claimed with him, Um, nobody else countered him, at least. In that situation, say you're a saint, and you really want to get killed at night, I think it's super strong to fake double claim with him. So John comes out as the empath. You know he's not the empath, or you strongly suspect he's not actually the empath. If you're the saint, and you say, hey, well, you can't be the empath because I'm the empath. Now, the from the evil team's perspective, there was a good player who tried to do something. Uh, they were trying to make themselves like a target or whatever by claiming empath. They failed because they got called out by another good player who actually is the empath. It's really hard in that situation to suspect the second person as also being somebody who wants to die at night. Now, this does not work if you fake double claim with an evil player, um, because then they're going to think that you're just the real empath calling them out, which, I mean, I guess could also get you killed, but most likely won't, because then you'll be in a double claim. 
But if you're in that situation where it's a good player who's like doing a bluff to try to get themselves killed, they might back off and say, okay, yeah, no, I was just bluffing. I'm not actually that. I, I believe you now. Now if everyone believes you're the empath, you get killed at night. And that's just the way it works. So that's a really strong thing. I haven't seen it done very often. I don't even know if I've done it myself. But it should work, <laughs> I hope. Uh, but yeah, fake, fake double claims. In general, uh, I found that in a, in a double claim situation, the second person to come out tends to be the one who everyone believes is actually the thing because it feels riskier to like fake call someone out like that. But as a result, that makes it so that when you do fake call someone out um, and you're also bluffing, then that'll lend a lot of credence to that and make the game hopefully turn out the way you want it to. All right, so that those are all the things where I thought of just like my general thoughts that I felt had never quite been put into words on this podcast, uh, although those concepts have come up before. Now a few things that I think we missed in specific episodes. So first of all, the empath. If you're the empath and you got a one, one of my favorite strategies, um, which I didn't figure out until after I recorded the empath episode, one of my favorite strategies is to tell both of your neighbors that you got a zero and then try to get them executed anyway, because that's a believable thing that an empath would do. You can be like, hey, I just want to get my neighbors executed to get more information, but I got a zero, so I trust both of you. Now, whichever one of them is evil is going to think you're drunk, and then you're not going to get killed at night, and there's a good chance you can just execute them anyway. So it's minimal downside, and if one of them really pushes back on you trying to execute them, then they're probably the evil one. So I think that's just a very strong thing you can do with the empath's information, where you can obscure the fact that you are a real empath um it might it'll make you either look like you're drunk or bluffing in either of those situations you're probably not going to get killed at night at least for a while and it's yeah it's just a strong thing to do and it doesn't really hinder your gameplay where you can still try to get that evil player executed about bluffing as the raven keeper something we missed in that episode as the demon you can either kill your minion at night or kill yourself to star pass and then whoever the person is that got killed they can bluff that they were the raven keeper and chose you or, or the other person. Let's just say you killed your minion and just know that this can work in the inverse as well. So you're the demon, you kill your minion. If you have your minion bluff Ravenkeeper and say that they chose you and that you, they're like, yeah, they, I can verify them as the character they've been claiming. So the whole game, you've been claiming Washerwoman. The Ravenkeeper gets killed at night. They choose you. The fake Ravenkeeper is actually your minion. They choose you. In the morning, they say, yep, I can confirm they are the Washerwoman. At that point... If you reveal that you were in fact only bluffing as the washerwoman, this is like a really strong way to throw that evil person under the bus. Uh, especially if they had any suspicion on them already, and you can make it look like a star pass. You can really, really make it seem like you are good by saying, okay, yeah, well, I wasn't actually the washerwoman. I was just bluffing as that. I'm actually the fortune teller, and I know this and this and this. That'll make it seem like they're an evil player trying to falsely confirm a good player just to like gain trust, especially if it's a, a situation where it looks like they would be doing a star pass there. In general, I, I found that strategies where the evil team intentionally makes one of the other members of the evil team look very evil, like you would in this situation, it makes, makes the other people who are involved in that plan much more trustworthy. Um, of course... This can be figured out like anything else where others can figure out like, yeah, well, what if you're working together and you planned this? But if you can pull it off, then, hey, that's it's a pretty strong thing to do, and it'll really make your second claim much more believable. Uh, something from the Saint episode that we didn't really talk about, uh, and this is playing against the Saint as evil. So towards the end of the game, it is possible that the evil team has enough voting power to just straight up execute the Saint and win. Even if you're not in that situation, 
It is also possible that the evil team has enough voting power to nominate the saint, get enough votes to execute them, and force the good team to spend their ghost votes to overturn that. This will mostly be a situation where, say, there's five players alive. One of them's the saint, one of them's the demon, obviously. If the demon gets executed, doesn't get enough votes to kill them, so you know they're safe for the day, then it could be a good idea to nominate the saint, get however many evil players are alive to vote for them, hopefully you have like two or three alive, and that'll force some good players to spend ghost votes. And the demon is safe for the day, so they'll be forced to spend those ghost votes on someone who isn't the demon or the saint. Or there's always a chance that you just get the saint executed. Um, so I feel like towards the end of the game, just nominating the saint and trying to just uh, like bully the good team into wasting their ghost votes early on, the saint is one of the only ways the evil team can kind of force that to happen. So I, I think that that's a very good thing to do. There's not really a bad outcome of it other than making yourself look really evil, which is a bad outcome. But if you can do it without that happening, then it's you're either going to kill the saint and win, or you're going to waste a bunch of good ghost votes, which is a big advantage. All right, Slayer. If there are four players alive, and one of them is a recluse or a claimed recluse, and you're not sure whether or not to believe them, this is the best time to at attempt to shoot them. One of two things will happen. Either they die, and you know they're either... The, or Well, yeah, you know they're the recluse, um, because, or the game ends at least, because they're the imp. But if they die, that confirms them as the recluse and you as the slayer, because there's four players alive, so there's no chance of it being um, a scarlet woman saving their demon. So that is a very good outcome if they die. And if you don't die, if they don't die, you still pretty much confirm them as recluse, or at least confirm them as not the demon, which is also strong. And I also just think that in this situation, the storyteller would allow you to kill them a lot of the time, because it's cool when you kill the recluse. And if they do let you kill them, then it's going to be very powerful. If they don't, then hey, you still just used your shot at four players alive. Um, I, I guess this piece of advice is mostly just if there's four players alive, one of whom is a claimed recluse, that should probably be your target because there are many ways for that to turn out well for you. Um, and shooting another player is less likely to turn out well. Okay, about the mayor. And let's see, is this my last one? This might be my last little thing here. So, a little bit of a shorter episode. That's all right. This is just wrapping up some loose ends for the mayor. And this is something that most people who have a lot of experience will probably realize, but voting for a tie is risky. A tie should be a fail-safe, and a tie is also just a way that the good team needs one fewer vote than normal to win. So, it's risky particularly because an evil player can easily tip the vote. So, for instance, if you say somebody's been nominated, they got like three votes, and then you say, okay, it's fine, I'm the mayor, let's all agree, we're going to do exactly three votes on this other person. The best person to nominate would be the person directly to your left. That way you're the final vote, other than them, of course. I guess yourself would probably be the best thing. That way you're the final vote. Because if you're not the final vote, there are people voting after you who can tip the scales either by saying, okay, yeah, I'll vote for this so you don't have to, or by voting when they're not supposed to. So in general, it's just a little bit risky to try to use the mayor's ability actively. You should tend to think of it more as, well, normally it would take the evil team three votes to win here, and like we would have to have more than three ghost votes in order to break that. But with the mayor in play, we need exactly three votes to break that because tying it's just as good. Um, so I tend to think of the mayor more as a fail-safe. Or, at least if I'm going to actively try to use the mayor ability, I would always try to make sure the person you're nominating is the mayor themselves as you're going for that tie. All right, 
that's about it. I hope those made sense and are helpful. If there's anything else you think I missed in these episodes, uh, let me know. You can get in touch with me at uh, coltoftheclocktower at gmail.com or you know comment on the Reddit post that I make in the uh, Blood on the Clock Tower subreddit. Uh, either of those would be good places, and I'd love to hear feedback about the show and about things you think I missed about characters or things you think I missed on the Things We Missed episode. Um, you know, anything like that is welcome. But yeah, thanks for listening, and you'll hear from me in a couple weeks doing something. Who knows? I don't. Bye. Bye.